and welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with your host, Raphael Bender. Great to be with you. I want to talk about hypermobility today. Now, we've already talked about hypermobility on this podcast in a much earlier episode. can't remember which number it was. Uh, everything before last week is uh, just a vague blur to me. Um, uh, but... Uh, I, I did look up what we talked about on that episode way back when, and uh, we're going to talk about a different aspect of hypermobility today. So what I want to talk about today is why you shouldn't worry about hypermobility. And what prompted me to make this episode was uh, I did a post on Instagram uh, this week about um, is it safe to lock your knees? And uh, my answer was, yes, it is safe to lock your knees, or more precisely, we don't have any evidence that it's unsafe to lock your knees, and we do have a fair bit of evidence that it is safe to lock your knees, so it's very likely that it's safe to lock your knees. Um, uh, and uh, what surprised me was the amount of excitement <laughs> this post caused. Uh, I thought it was a pretty straightforward statement. I cited a couple of studies there. Uh, or one study where there was a randomized controlled trial um, in hypermobile children, uh, and there were two groups, and they were randomized to either exercise into their full hypermobile range, or the other group was uh, exercised only to neutral. Uh, and then uh, eight weeks later, they've both groups had improved in pain and function the exact same amount, um, and there was no basically no difference between them. Uh, and uh, so what we can conclude from that, although it is one only one study, one we can, what we can conclude from that, I think, is like, well, it just seems to not make any difference if you exercise into the hypermobile range or if you uh, avoid the hypermobile range. Um, and I thought that was an interesting thing to post, uh, but a lot of people got quite excited about it. So um, I'm going to delve uh, deeper into this and into this literature. Um, and uh, I want to address... You know, some common, I guess, some common themes I saw in a lot of the comments on this post. Uh, and I, I think those common themes were essentially can be boiled down to assuming that hypermobility does cause a problem and that it is dangerous to hyperextend your knees, but that... Uh, you know, if we contract muscle A, B, or C, whether it's, you know, contract the quads, pull up the kneecaps, or co-contract the quads and the hamstrings, or whether it's we engage our glutes and our core, um, you know, whatever it might be, we can uh, keep, keep our hypermobile clients safe. So there were sort of two groups of people. Well, no, there were three groups of people who commented on this post. One group were like, oh, great. Okay. I don't have to worry about hypermobility, about locking my knees. That's awesome. And a second group were like, oh, yeah, I agree. It's safe to hyperextend the knees if you're co-contracting the quads and the hamstrings, pulling up on the kneecaps, engaging the glutes, the core, the pelvic floor, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third group were like, no, it's not safe to hyperextend your knees. And just because you, we don't have any evidence that it's unsafe doesn't mean that it's safe. Um, so I want to, I want to address the latter two groups. Uh, with respect, because I used to be in both of those groups at one point. Uh, so firstly, I want to um, ad address 
uh, start out by by introducing something called the null hypothesis. And this is a fancy way of saying in science that the person making the claim, the onus is on that person to provide evidence to back their claim. So we should start from an assumption that any anything like any particular like special thing isn't true, <laughs> and then uh, you know it's up to the person claiming it's true to prove it's true. And or another way of saying this is the principle of parsimony, uh, which just you know parsimony is where you kind of mean and 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 you know uh, don't. Um, you know, you're very stingy. <laughs> so you give away as little as possible. So the parsimonious explanation in science is the one that requires the least number of assumptions. So what I mean by that is if we assume, you know, if we if we look at somebody and they're hypermobile and they're moving into the hypermobile range um, and they're contracting their quads and pulling their kneecaps up and co-contracting their hamstrings and they're engaging their pelvic floor and their core and their glutes, and we assume that they're staying safe in their hypermobile range because they're doing all of those things, okay? Well, that requires a whole bunch of assumptions around, you know, muscles, you know, various muscles having actions on the joint and they're being, they're being first, they're being danger. Secondly, that those muscles contractions and consciously contracting the muscle correlates with actually contracting the muscle. And thirdly, that contracting the muscle uh, reduces the danger, and that's why they're not experiencing pain or injury in that position. Now, there's another alternate explanation which just says, well, it's perfectly safe to extend your joints into the hypermobile range, and it doesn't matter if you contract your quads or glutes or whatever. It's irrelevant. It's just like there's not a danger there. And that requires no, no assumptions. It's a very simple explanation. It's a parsimonious explanation. It has few assumptions. So that would be the null hypothesis in this case, the null hypothesis being well, it's perfectly safe and we don't have to worry about it. And so anybody proposing a more complex uh, interpretation should supply evidence that the complex interpretation better explains what we're seeing than the simple explanation. Right, so I hope that makes sense. So I guess we could sum all of that up at the null hypothesis, the parsimonious um, you know, the um, principle of parsimony uh, by saying that we should start by assuming that the most simple explanation is correct. Now, it's not always true that the most simple explanation is correct, but we should start by assuming that the most simple explanation is correct until presented with evidence to the contrary. So it should be our default assumption that the most simple explanation is the, is the accurate one. All right, so the null hypothesis. So when we, you know, and, and when we boil this down, you know, wouldn't it be better, wouldn't it be better if the, the simple explanation was the, was the true one? <laughs> wouldn't it be better and easier if we didn't have to go around, you know, contracting all those muscles or avoiding the hypermobile range or learning, you know, which specific, you know, cues to give people who are hypermobile. Wouldn't it just be easier if we just said, hey, do footwork and don't worry about it, right? Wouldn't that be easier? I think it would be easier. <laughs> um, so, all right, so I said there are a whole bunch of assumptions underpinning that um, that interpretation, you know, of like, oh, well, I'm safe to go into the hypermobile range because I'm contracting muscles A, B, C, and D, and, you know, 
pulling my kneecaps up and cueing this and that and the other. So there are a whole bunch of assumptions embedded within that interpretation. Now, the other interpretation, which is like, no, it's just not safe to go into hypermobile range, don't ever do it. Um, there's a whole bunch of assumptions buried in there as well, which and the first assumption underpinning both of those things is it's dangerous to go into the hypermobile range. So, you know, is that true? Is being hypermobile associated with more injuries than not being hypermobile? Well, we have some research on that. Uh, so uh, in a study of uh, physical therapy students uh, in the US, they found, I think there was about 30 or 40 physical therapy students, what they found was uh, there were no differences in injury rates between hypermobile and non-hypermobile students, but the location of the injury was different between hypermobile and non-hypermobile students. And I'll link to all these um, uh, papers in the show notes. So in this study, they found, and I'll actually just pull up the study uh, and see if I can uh, tell you exactly how many people were in it. Um, there were 35 subjects, 13 male and 22 female. So what they found that was that the the non-hypermobile students had more joint and ligament injuries, so more sprains and uh, uh, joint injuries, um, whereas the hypermobile physical therapy students had fewer joint injuries and more muscle injuries. They had more strains, muscle strains. And uh, the researchers hypothesized that because of the greater flexibility of the joints, the joints were able to bend further without injuring, whereas actually it was the muscles that were injured by going beyond that normal range. So whereas in the non-hypermobile students, they didn't sustain fewer injuries, they just they sustained injuries in a different location. The non-hypermobile students had injuries to their joints. They had ligament you know, sprains more commonly. So that's interesting. And there was an observational study of 114 uh, amateur athletes. Um, and they found, again, no difference in injury rates between hypermobile and non-hypermobile athletes, but more dislocations in the hypermobile group and more joint and ligament injuries in the non-hypermobile group. So again, how many injuries was the same between hypermobile and non-hypermobile? Where the injuries were located and the type of injuries was different between those two groups, with the hypermobile group having more dislocations and the non-hypermobile group also having joint injuries, but they were have they had ligament sprains uh, in the in the non-hypermobile group. So in the hypermobile group, their ligaments were long enough that the actually ligaments weren't injured and they allowed the joint to dislocate, whereas in the non-hypermobile group. The ligaments were tighter, and so when the joints were pushed to that extended position or hyperextended position, instead of allowing the joint to hyperextend, the ligament actually was damaged. So it's it's not a case of more or fewer injuries. It's just a case of which particular structures were injured in these amateur athletes, 114 of them. And in 255 Thai physical therapy students, uh, again, there was no association between hypermobility and injury rates or lower injury, lower limb pain. And they didn't look at like the particulars of where these people were injured in this study, uh, but this, the, the overall injury rate. So those are three studies uh, with a total of, you know, 
400 um, participants showing all showing consistently no difference in lower limb injuries between hypermobile versus non-hypermobile uh, people, but just a difference in the location of the injury, so which particular tissues were injured. So the hypermobile people seemed to have more muscle strains and more dislocations, and the non-hypermobile people seems to have more ligament sprains and joint injuries. So uh, it doesn't seem to be the case that hypermobile people have more injuries, although I think that is that varies by sport um, to some extent. So uh, in dancers, um, hypermobility was correlated with increased pain, and they look particularly at ankle pain in this study. Uh, but interestingly, when they did uh, stabilization exercises for these dancers, it didn't change the pain or injury incidence. So people with hypermobility had more pain, but stabilization exercises didn't make any difference to that, which is interesting uh, and might be because uh, the pain from hypermobility is probably not related to joint stabilization. It's probably more related to central nervous system sensitization. Uh, after ACL reconstruction, so the anterior cruciate ligament in the knee, uh, athletes returning to sport have a five times higher incidence of re-injury of that ACL if they're hypermobile. So that is a significant uh, increase in risk. And so if I was working with somebody who was hypermobile and had an ACL injury, uh, I would want to make you know, darn sure that they were back to probably stronger than their pre-injury strength uh, and definitely give them that minimum 12 months of uh, rehab to allow, you know, full healing of the tissues before returning them to sport. So this is return to sport, right? This is not just people, um, you know, uh, doing their everyday activities. So there's a significantly increased risk of injury there for re-injury for people who've had an ACL tear to have a second ACL tear, whether it's in the same side or in the other knee. Uh, whereas, um, uh, for NCAA Division I collegiate footballers, uh, researchers followed them for two years and found no difference in injury rates between hypermobile and non-hypermobile athletes, either whether they measured injury by the days lost to playing, the number of treatments they received, or their rates of surgery. Um, so, and this is, you know, Division I uh, collegiate footballers, like that's a pretty high intensity full contact, high impact sport. Um, uh, and, you know, it, there are no differences in injuries between hypermobile and non-hypermobile uh, collegiate footballs. And NCA Division One is, is pretty elite. Like these are very high level athletes there. So that's very interesting. So overall, I would say the literature is somewhat mixed. But by and large, it seems that hypermobile people don't have more uh, injuries to the lower limb than non-hypermobile people, although they do experience uh, injuries to different tissues. Uh, and they may have more pain than non-hypermobile people, and there does seem to be a greater risk of re-injury 
or after ACL reconstruction for people who are hypermobile. So that's as to the risk of injury. It seems to be about the same uh, with a couple of exceptions, which I have just mentioned. Now, as to you know what we should do about that, if anything, right? So just seeing that uh, basically people with hypermobility don't have more injuries than people without hypermobility, except if you're coming back from a, an ACL reconstruction. Okay, so that that particular group aside, basically people don't have um, more in more pain or sorry more injuries than a than non hypermobile people. Now in that study with dancers, they didn't measure injury; they looked at pain. Right now, I did mention when I mentioned that study that hypermobile people. There are other studies showing hypermobile people have more pain than people who are not hypermobile. But the location of the pain in their body doesn't necessarily correlate with the location of the hypermobile joints. Hypermobile people tend to have more pain everywhere in their body, uh, and they tend to be more sensitive to heat, more sensitive to cold, uh, more sensitive to pressure, etc. So it's not just musculoskeletal pain that is increased in people with hypermobility, and it's not just pain in the joints that are hypermobile. So people with hypermobility tend to have more pain, but that's not the same thing as saying they have more injuries. Uh, and it's likely, and I mentioned this on the previous podcast about hypermobility, uh, that that increase in pain we see in hypermobile people is more related to central nervous system sensitization because uh, hypermobility is a connective tissue disorder where you have looser collagen in your connective tissue, in your fascia. And we think of connective tissue, uh, often we think of the musculoskeletal system, like ligaments and tendons and the thoracolumbar fascia and things like that, aponeuroses, joint capsules, those types of things. And all of those are made from fascia and they are uh, affected by hypermobility. However, fascia, connective tissue, connects pretty much every part of your body. So you have connective tissue wrapping around your uh, blood vessels, your, your veins and your arteries, for example. And so when you have more loosely packed connective tissue, your blood pressure regulation suffers. You have connective tissue around your digestive tract, around, uh, you know, your, your nerve tract are encased in connective tissue. So people with, um, you know, hypermobility, uh, that your brain is encased in connective tissue. Your lungs are encased in connective tissue. So there is the, you know, the, the hypermobility, loosely packed connective tissue is, uh, is a condition that affects all body systems, um, including the pain system. And so, uh, you know, people with hypermobility, uh, tend to have things like, you know, digestive issues, um, uh, you know, low uh, blood pressure, um, you know, all kinds of, um, you know, heart issues sometimes, um, as well as, uh, increased pain sensitization. Um, and that is most likely a result of, uh, nervous system factors rather than, um, you know, biomechanics, biomechanical changes in the joints. All right. So I'm not going to go any deeper into that. If you want to hear more on that, go and back and back into the archives and listen to the previous episode on hypermobility. Um, what I want to talk about now is what happens if we stabilize? Okay. What happens if we, if we do, uh, you know, stability exercises 
to help somebody with hypermobility. Um, well, this uh, there was an eight-week a trial of an eight-week bespoke physical therapy program. So bespoke means like customized to each individual person. So joint stabilization exercises, you know, act muscle activation, all that kind of stuff, combined with occupational therapy. So bespoke physical therapy plus occupational therapy for eight weeks versus the other group got advice and information. That's all. And after eight weeks, there was no difference. Both groups improved equally. So bespoke physical therapy and occupational therapy compared to a leaflet with some advice and information, both weeks, both groups improved equally after eight weeks. So that tends to suggest that there's not a lot of value being added by all that stabilization and bespoke, you know, cueing. Uh, in a, you know, in that study I mentioned with the dancers, when they added phys- uh, stabilization exercises, it didn't change pain or injury incidents for those dancers. So that t- also tends to suggest that stabilization exercise doesn't add any value for these people. A 2014 systematic review found that there is, quote, some evidence that people with joint hypermobility syndrome improve with exercise, but there is no convincing evidence for specific types of exercise or that exercise is better than control, end quote. So it does seem to be the case that exercise helps, but there's no convincing, quote, no convincing evidence, end quote, (laughs) that there is any particular type of exercise that is better than any other exercise or even that exercise is better than just placebo or reassurance and advice to stay active. So I think we are, you know, our our house of turtles uh, for joint hypermobility is uh, very uh, precariously balanced. And the assumptions upon which it is balanced um, are, are not supported. The first assumption that people with hypermobility are in more danger or have more injuries is just simply not supported. If you, uh, with the exception of re-injury for after anterior cruciate ligament surgery. But just for general injuries in whether it's um, undergraduate college students or whether it's uh, dancers, whether it is division one footballers or whether it's amateur collegiate athletes, there is no detectable difference in injury rates uh, for hypermobile people compared to non-hypermobile people. It's just where the injury occurs that is different between those groups. So the assumption that there is danger in being hypermobile is unfounded. We don't have any evidence that supports that assumption. Now, hypermobile people tend to be uh, you know, often apprehensive about hyperextending their joints. And I think that's there's a couple of reasons for that. One is because they've we've put the fear of it into them. You know, well-meaning polite instructors like me, I've, I've done this have told them, oh, don't hyperextend your knee, it's dangerous, you might hurt yourself. And secondly, one of the one of the other effects that comes with 
loose connective tissue. Like I said, your nerve, nerve tracts are wrapped in connective tissue. Your brain is wrapped in connective tissue. Uh, your brain is filled with connective tissue that holds your nerves together. And so the brain, the central nervous system, is profoundly affected in hypermobility. People with hypermobility have more anxiety, more panic disorder, more agoraphobia than people without hypermobility. And so people tend to have higher anxiety who have hypermobility. And so when we put the fear of movement into them, that that can be amplified by the 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 natural you know increase in anxiety that often accompanies hypermobility. So we should be reassuring these people rather than increasing their fear. So that assumption uh, that it's dangerous, uh, hypermobility is dangerous, I think is unfounded based on the evidence that we see, with the exception of return to sport after ACL reconstruction. Now, the second assumption is that it's safe if we stabilize. And by stabilize, I mean any combination of, you know, activating quads, pulling up your kneecap, co-activating quads and hamstrings, engaging your pelvic floor, your transversus, your glutes, watching your hip alignment, you know, keeping knees over toes, all of that stuff, okay? VMO activation, whatever you want to think of, okay? So any basically cueing of specific muscles, activating of specific muscles, um, thinking about alignment to protect us, or keep us safe uh, from hyperextension uh, is not supported uh, because we're at the point in terms of uh, exercise research where we've got um, only one study that directly compares hypermobility exercises, the hypermobile range versus not. But we have a bunch, and they found no difference, and that's the one I quoted in my post, but we have a bunch of studies comparing joint-specific exercise to just general exercise. So this wasn't specifically like hyperextension versus neutral, but this was like joint-specific stabilization exercises versus just do some some push-ups, some sit-ups, some squats, some lunges. And what we find in that 2014 systematic review that analyzed all of those studies was no discernible difference between general exercise versus joint-specific exercise for hypermobility. So just telling someone to do some lunges or some squats or some footwork or some step-ups on the chair without giving them specific cues about pulling their kneecap up or co-activating their quads and their hamstrings or activating their VMO or their pelvic floor or their core or their glutes or their intrinsic muscles in their arch of their foot or any of that, just saying like, hey, put your foot here, now step up. Okay, or put your feet on the foot bar, now push the carriage out. Okay, without giving them any instructions about whether to hyperextend or whether to not hyperextend, which muscles to activate, which muscles to not activate, which kneecaps to pull up or not pull up, just simply telling them, push the carriage out, now bring the carriage back in. Step up, now step down. A really simple general exercise program has been shown to give the same benefit as a highly bespoke joint-specific exercise program for hypermobile people. So again, we're back to the principle of parsimony, that null hypothesis, the default assumption should be that the simplest approach, the simplest explanation, the one requiring the fewest assumptions, the fewest moving parts, is the correct one. Now, it's not always the case that that is the correct one, but that should be our default assumption. And with the weight of evidence that we currently have, uh, all essentially supporting that, there is no credible reason, in my view, 
to queue any differently for people with hypermobility compared to people without hypermobility. In my view, somebody who's hypermobile, queuing them should be the same as someone who's non-hypermobile in the same way that somebody with red hair, you wouldn't cue them differently. It's just not relevant to how they move. We all have our unique our body proportions, our unique lengths of limb segments and muscle attachment points and fi- muscle fiber composition and motor, you know, um, cortex organization and, you know, our previous skills and genetics and epigenetics and environment and, you know, assumptions about movement and history. So we all are unique, right? Of course, we're all unique. And being hypermobile is one of the dimensions along which, you know, we we can be unique, okay? Or being super stiff is one of those dimensions as well. Being tall, being short, being heavy, being light, having long femurs, short femurs, you know, there are so many unique things about us. Uh, but the brilliant thing is our premotor cortex automatically organizes our movement in in a non-conscious process, just like digesting food or, you know, bl- there is you know, blinking or breathing. You know, we don't have to consciously control these processes. Our premotor cortex knows our limb lengths and our ligament lengths and our joint, you know, stiffness or laxity and prog- and, and tells, you know, organizes our body to move in a brilliant way without us consciously thinking about it. Now, a premotor cortex doesn't always get it right and it benefits from practice. The more you do footwork, the better you get at it. But you don't need to consciously activate a muscle or pull your kneecaps up or avoid hyperextension or any of that stuff because your premotor cortex will automatically improve the efficiency of your movement every time you practice. And the more you do it over time, the more you will improve, even if you don't have specific instructions or, in fact, probably more so if you don't have specific instructions. So I just want to finish up by thinking about uh, you know the 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 individual anecdote, which of which there are a couple in the comments of this post of you know. But what about? And I'm paraphrasing here. This wasn't one specific comment, but like basically, okay, what about this one particular client of mine? You know, when she hyperextended her knee, she dislocated her kneecap. You know, so you can't make blanket statements about it's safe to hyperextend. Well. Uh, I, you know, I think that I disagree with that statement on, on, for two reasons, and I agree with it for one reason. <laughs> so I'm going to share what those things are. So firstly, um, I think, you know, we have to, by and large, disregard edge cases. So when we're thinking in generalizations, and we have to think in generalizations, right? Now, there will always be edge cases. And we have to deal with those on a case-by-case basis, and I'll get to that in a moment. That's the third thing why I think this statement is correct. Uh, but we can't focus on the edge cases. We have to have rules of thumb that tell us, by and large, this movement is safe, right? So we say, okay, footwork is a safe exercise. Yes, great, it is safe. What about for someone with two broken legs? Well, no, it's not safe for that person. So does that mean footwork is not safe and saying footwork is safe is like irresponsible and dangerous? No, it just means... If you've got two broken legs, 
There are lots of exercises you should avoid. Probably footwork is one of them. So I think we need to disregard edge cases when we're, when we're making generalizations and rules of thumb. It should be like, you know, we should understand, we need to understand that when we make a generalization, it, of course, nothing, no statement applies to everybody. There are always going to be people who are exceptions to a rule. So, but we, we can't obsess about those people because they are not the majority of people in your class, right? If you think, oh, footwork is not safe because what if someone had two broken legs? It's like, I'm never going to teach footwork. It's like, well, you're going to you know, stop like hundreds of people doing footwork and there's probably no one in your class with two broken legs. So it's like you're actually just causing a disadvantage to all of your clients there. So we need to think about the 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 norm, not the exception. Now, when we do have a client who's an exception, we need to think about that person as an individual, and I'll talk about that in a moment. So that's the first thing. I think we need to think about the the average, the norm, you know, the usual, the majority, not the edge cases. Um, we need to acknowledge the edge cases, but we should, you know, think in terms of the norm. Uh, the second thing is when somebody says, you know, my client, you know, hyperextended their knee and that's when their kneecap dislocated. Well, my question is, well, did it? Uh, now it may be the case that that is a true statement and I'll get to that in a moment, like I said, but, uh, it could also be the case that we retroactively fitted our assumptions to match, you know, our perception of reality with what we pre-assumed or preconceived would be the case, right? So we know this client's hypermobile. They come in, they tell us, oh, I dislocated my kneecap on the weekend. You say, oh, did you hyperextend? They go, yeah, I guess I, I, guess I must have. <laughs> um, and bam, there it is. It becomes your gospel. So now, my if you have somebody who has a previous history of, dis- history of dislocation, whether that's their kneecap, their shoulder, you know, whatever joint they dislocate, okay? The, the, the best practice is to avoid the specific position and forces in which they previously dislocated. So if that's in the case of a shoulder, typically it's abduction, extension, external rotation is the position where the shoulder can dislocate. Now, for 99% of people, that's a perfectly safe position, right? So it's like, hug a tree, okay? The open arms position of hug a tree. Or, you know, uh, I guess, yeah, open elbows, that sort of position. So it's not, I think it's not right to say, oh, you know, everyone should avoid that position, but for somebody who previously dislocated in that position, yes, they should avoid that position. However, in the and that's the same in, in the case of me. So if someone's previously dislocated, their knee in a hyperextended position, yes, we should probably avoid that position. But I also would question, is that in fact what happened? And what uh, were there any other relevant contextual factors? So for example, you know, was was were you playing sports? Was there a, you know, were you running and there was a direction change and you're hyperextended and twisted and then you got tackled from the side at the same time by a hundred kilo, you know, person and then your kneecap dislocated? Okay, well, we should probably avoid that then. Okay. But probably just doing footwork in a straight front to back position with two springs on, you'll be fine. Right. So it's like 
yes, it was hyperextended, but were there other factors, like was there rotational force? Was there a, a, an external force applied to the body? You know, what were the loads? Um, you know, what was the magnitude of the loads? Was it a very large load, like running and direction change being struck by an external object? Or was it a very small load, like footwork on two springs? Okay. So if that person previously dislocated their kneecap whilst doing footwork on two springs when they hyperextended their knee, I would say, by all means, let's avoid hyperextension for that person. So this is the third, you know, part of, you know, where I think, yes, that statement has some validity. And I agree, uh, you can't make blanket statements about everybody because some people are exceptions to the rule. And for those people, we need to make exceptions to our rule, right? But the thing is, it's an exception. It's not the rule. So for somebody who did have a history of dislocation, I would ask them very specific questions about exactly what was happening when in the moment when they dislocated their knee. You know, what position were they in? What was the context? Were they running? Were they pivoting? Were there other people involved? Were, they, were there forces involved, etc.? And I would just avoid that particular set of circumstances. And if that was doing footwork, then I would avoid hyperextending in footwork. Right? Easy. Like, so yes, that would be, an, that would be a, for sure, if they have a history of doing that injury in that position, let's avoid that position. Uh, but for most people, that's not going to be the case. Even for most people who've got a history of dislocation, it's not the case that they'll dislocate when they're just doing a sagittal, you know, front to back movement on a stable surface like a carriage and a foot bar, right? So it's usually they're going to be some kind of like instability or unexpected force involved or another person or a direction change or a ball or something like that. So, dear listener, I hope you find that useful. I think we don't need, you know, the, the weight of the evidence shows us that we don't need to worry about hypermobility, uh, that there isn't a difference in injury risk between hypermobile and non-hypermobile people by and large. And that for hypermobile people, when although they do have more pain than non-hypermobile people, that pain is not necessarily related to the biomechanics of the joint. It seems to be a more systemic central nervous system uh, driven phenomenon. Um, and exercise can help people with hypermobility, uh, but we're very far from having evidence that there's a specific type of exercise, i.e. stability exercise. That helps people more in quite to the contrary. All of the trials that we have that compare like joint specific exercise with general exercise for people with hypermobility find they work just as well as each other. There's no difference. And the single study that we have comparing exercise into the hypermobile range versus the same exercise done just to neutral found, guess what? No difference. They both improved. So I think uh, there is you know, pretty strong evidence at this point that we don't need to be concerned about hypermobility um, in the Pilates space uh, and that there is absolutely no need or benefit to doing specific stabilization or correctional exercises or limiting people's range of motion or telling them to pull their kneecaps up or down or sideways. Um, and that we can just get them moving and not give them any specific instructions that are different to the instructions we just give to any Pilates client. Now, there is one asterisk on that. Well, there's two asterisks. The first asterisk is after ACL reconstruction, be careful about returning to sport. And the second one is for somebody with a history of dislocation, uh, do avoid the position and forces in which they previously 
dislocated. But if they dislocated with a very high force rotational uh, situation, uh, they should be totally fine to do a low force sagittal situation. So dear listener, that's it. I hope you found that useful. Peruse through the show notes, read some of those studies if you're interested. Much love and I'll see you in the next one. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means You keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.